turn to Isaiah 61. Now, I sort of already answered this question, I guess, um, but this, this kind of hit me this, this afternoon when I was studying for this text tonight. You've got one time that I, that I remember, and I think this is right, one time when Jesus went to the synagogue to preach. I don't know if he went there intending to preach. Maybe he did. But one time when Jesus went to the synagogue and he ended up preaching. Now, he went to the synagogue. In fact, this text says, Luke 4 is where it was. Luke 4. It says, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as his custom was. So this is something he did. On the Sabbath day, Jesus would have been gathered with fellow believers in the synagogue. What they'd have, they'd, it would be in some ways similar to, to our worship service. They would have singing. They would have a scripture reading that had reflection on scripture. And so Jesus, it just says he stood up to preach. So it doesn't say, I'm guessing, I think the custom was he was asked to preach by the synagogue leader. But it doesn't actually say. He ended up standing up to preach. Now, here's the fascinating thing about this. Only time we have where Jesus stood up to preach in the synagogue, as far as I know, and he, got, he, he chose the text. And that, that kind of, that's kind of interesting. This, this one time we've got in the New Testament where Jesus stands up to preach in the synagogue and he, and he stood up to preach and he chose a text. That's kind of interesting to me to think, man, that text must be pretty neat. I mean, they're all, they're all neat. They're all part of Scripture. They're all inspired of God. They all have something unique and something special to talk to us about. But Jesus, he had 39 books. Right? The way the Jews thought about the text, they, they divided it up into 24. So he had 24 books in the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. And he picked two verses. And that was his text. And this is it. This is it. Isaiah 61. And so in Luke 4, which will probably end up just briefly talking about that, and Luke 4, because it stirred up some, some pretty strong feelings after he chose that text because of what he said after it. And we'll look at that in a bit. But that's in Luke 4, so he stood up to preach, stood up to read Scripture, and he read Isaiah 61, 1, and part of verse 2. So I think that's pretty neat. So let's look at what he read, and let's look at the, the entire chapter there. It only has a handful of verses, so it's not very long. But Isaiah 61 is the text that he used. So if you're there with me, let's think about it for a couple of minutes. Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that's where he stopped, by the way. And the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priest of the Lord. You shall speak of you. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be double portion. 
Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. Now, I'll finish that up in a minute, but let's think about it for a minute because there's some pretty neat things that are said here. And I think it's, it's pretty neat that Jesus chose this text. Now, if you look at this, this breaks down into three sections. This chapter does. The first seven verses, and then you've got the Lord speaking in verses 8 and 9. And then you've got 10 and 11 and 12 where the prophet speaks up and closes the chapter out. Okay, but let's look at the first section here, the first seven verses. We're not going to spend a great deal of time on this. I want you to notice there are basically six things. I'm not going to do much more than list them. But you can see these infinitive phrases here that he uses. And he starts out in verse 1 by saying, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. And then he says to do six things. Okay, I'll just say a word about them. But he, he's anointed me to do six things. Number one, he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. By the way, I, I, I should have said this already. When Jesus used this text in Luke 4, he read, sat down, and then he said, this day, this scripture is being fulfilled in your ears. Okay, That's what got everybody upset because he said, a lot of debate about Isaiah 61. Who's speaking here? You know, because it says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. The Lord has anointed me. That's Christos. That's Messiah language. He's anointed me. That, that's what Christ means, anointed one. So there's a lot of debate here, even today to this day, about who Isaiah was talking about. So in Jesus' day, Jesus read this, and he says, here I am. That got them all. That got them all riled up and didn't like that much at all. But anyway, so I, I can't help but read this, and I think we ought to read this through that lens, through that Christ lens, because Jesus has interpreted this text for us. He's saying this has its ultimate fulfillment in his day. Now, it had a fulfillment then. This is, in the Old Testament, a lot of times you've got what, what they call dual fulfillment. You know, you've got, a, you've got a, an immediate fulfillment in the immediate horizon of the author. So in his day and time, this in some way had some sort of fulfillment in many cases. And then you've got that ultimate fulfillment looking over the horizon to the Messiah. That's what Jesus is talking about, Luke 4. So, I have to read it through that kind of lens. So six things he says. He's, um, he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. That's, that's gospel language. I mean, bring good news. I hope when you hear the, the words good news, you think gospel. He has anointed me, basically, to preach the gospel to the poor. Jesus says, I, that's me. That's what I've been doing. That's, where, that's what I'm beginning to do. That was at the beginning of his ministry when he did that in Luke 4. So he's, he's saying to the poor, your situation is going to change. I came to bring you good news. If the gospel we preach is not good news to everybody, then we got the wrong gospel. The message of Jesus is good news. If it's not good news to the poor, it's not the good news of Jesus. You know, it, it's good news because of what it offers to us, regardless of where we are in society, to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me, number two, to bind up. That means to heal, to, you know, to, to wrap in a bandage the brokenhearted. You've got to love this kind of language. Jesus says, I, I came to do this. To preach the gospel to the poor. That's what some people say in the Bible there's this preferential option for the poor. 
I like that phrase, a preferential option for the poor. God has a, God has a soft spot in his heart for poor. Those who are marginalized, uh, material poverty, also spiritual poverty, those who are on the margins for whatever reason, Jesus, you see this from his ministry. He preached the gospel to those folks more than he did those who were in positions of power. So he preached gospel to the poor, number one. Number two, he sent me to heal people, heal their hearts. Their hearts are broken. He came to fix that. Number three, to proclaim liberty to the captives. This, is, this expression here is used three times in Jeremiah 34, if you want to make a note. Verses 8, 15, and 17, it's used three times there to talk about the release of slaves. So, so to proclaim liberty to the captives. This, this was supposed to happen every six years in the Old Testament. Jesus says, or, or the, the prophet here says, that's what the anointed one will do. Jesus says, that's what I'm doing, to proclaim liberty to the captives. He sets the captives free. That metaphor is used a lot in the Bible, people who are captive to sin. Jesus came to set them free. Jesus came to bring freedom, not slavery, not bondage. So that's the third one. The opening of the prison to those who are bound. That's part of the third one. Number four, in verse two, the anointed one comes to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's a reference probably to the year of Jubilee, that, that 50th year. This, they'd have you know, Sabbath year every, seven, every seventh year, and then every seven weeks of seven. In other words, the 50th year, you'd have a year of Jubilee where debts are paid or debts are released and people, captives are set free. Lots of good stuff happened. They never observed that as far as we know, by the way. They never did it. They were supposed to. Jesus says, I came to make it happen in spite of the fact that God's people haven't done it. And to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. So Jesus, when he comes, he brings both blessing but to those who reject him, he brings vengeance. Mine reminds you of maybe of 2 Thessalonians 1. Uh, Jesus brings rest to those who are afflicted, but he brings judgment to those who do the afflicting, to those who don't know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's 2 Thessalonians 1. So he proclaims, whoever the anointed one is, is we know it's Jesus, but he proclaims the year of the Lord's favor and also the day of vengeance of our God. And then, and then he does this. He comforts those who are mourning, end of verse 2. And to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. So, so this, this, this next one is he brings comfort to those who are mourning and he provides to those who are grieving this something new and beautiful, something glorious for them to wear. And you hear the picturesque language here when he says, you know, this beautiful headdress, this, the garments are attractive and beautiful. I think he's foreshadowing. He's going to talk about getting married down below uh, instead of ashes, the ashes of mourning, oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Jesus comes to set people free and to make people glad and happy and joyful. It's a beautiful text. Now, I want to we're going to switch gears here uh, because there's something interesting about this text that jumps out at you when you read it closely. When you read it, especially when you read it several times, you'll start noticing this theme that's consistent with the theme of the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. 
You remember when God called Abraham? Genesis 12, remember that text? He said, you know, leave your family, leave your nation, leave your homeland to a land that I'm going to show you. I'm going to give you this great land. I'm going to make of you a great nation. And then <clears throat> a promise that informs the rest of the Bible. Through you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There's this emphasis throughout the Old Testament and on into the New Testament that all the nations, this all the nations kind of thing. Israel was meant to be a blessing to all the nations. But ultimately, that they failed at that in many respects. But Jesus came through Israel, and he became a blessing to all the nations. But you've got that kind of emphasis, especially in the Old Testament text, where God keeps coming to the people and saying, look, you're supposed to live your lives in a way that blesses the nations. They ought to look at you and think, man, God is, God is wonderful because I see it in his people. And I see it, I see it when I look at them, the way he blesses them and the way they live. It's just an amazing thing. So I want you to notice here, first part of this text, the anointed one does all this stuff. This is what he brings. He brings joy and gladness and healing and, you know, liberty and all this. Why does he do it? Now, notice a couple of things here. And that's really what the rest of this chapter is about, all right? Look down, if you would, to, well, the end of verse 3. We already read this. But the language here, you, you, you pass over this without really thinking about it. But the end of verse 3, here's, here's why he does it. All right, I'm doing all this stuff. That they may be called, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. You're going to find this is a recurring theme in this, in this prophecy. And it's a recurring theme in the Bible that they may be called. Why, why does God do this? Why does he bless? Why does he bring joy? Why does he bring gladness? Why does he proclaim liberty to the captive? Why does he do that? So that they, his people, may be called oaks of righteousness. The image here is of this great, huge, beautiful, towering oak. And everybody sees it and they see something marvelous <coughs> and something impressive and beautiful. We know that because of the, of the end of this that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. They're going to know that God is the one who planted that tree. He's the one who made it grow. That's the idea. They're going to look at Israel. They're going to look at how Israel's blessed. They're going to look at the way they live, and they're going to think, oh, wow, what, a, what an incredible God those people serve. Because oak trees don't get that big on their own. That's the idea. The planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. God wants his people to bring glory to the creator of the universe. He wants people to see, he wants the nations to see his people, the oak tree, and to realize who planted and who watered, who made that thing grow, that he may be glorified. You see that emphasis there? Now, if you don't believe me, that that's a theme here, I'll read on. Look at verses 8 and 9. For I, the Lord, God speaking in these two verses, for I, the Lord, love justice. So, so why is God doing this? Again, you've got this four phrase. Some translations put because, making it clearer. Why does God do all this stuff? Why does he bless and bless and bless and bless and bless? Why does he do it? So that they may see that big old oak tree. But here in verse 8, for I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known. Again, hear this language. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. See that? 
Why does God do this? Why does he bless and bless and bless? Just make us feel good? He does it so that more and more people will come to understand the one who does the blessing. He wants people to know who he is. And one of the ways he does that is by blessing his people so that the their, their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the people and all who see them acknowledge them that they are an offspring of the Lord. They're an offspring the Lord is blessed. There's this emphasis here, God blesses so that his people will live in a way where people look at the God who blessed. Look at verse 11. This is the last, last verse of the chapter. Verse 11. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before what? What does your Bible say? Before all the nations. What in the world, you know, why, you may be wondering, well, okay, what's the big deal? I understand that. I get the point. It's because Jesus told, chose this text, you know, and he, he chose this text and Maybe he wanted us to read a little bit beyond where he quoted, which is often the case when, when a New Testament writer or person uh, quotes a portion of the Old Testament text, a lot of times he's assuming your knowledge of the rest of the context of, of the chapter. And maybe that's true here. And he's wanting us to get a lesson from his words in Luke 4 to understand not only who Jesus is, but why he blesses, why God blesses us. You know, one, one more that is a little bit more subtle maybe is in verse 10 where he uses this wedding language. I skipped over this one. Verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. And here's this wedding language. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Now, somebody pointed this out. I was reading. I didn't come up with this. But I think it's right. Why does, a, why does a bride dress up in the most beautiful dress that she can possibly have on her wedding day? Why does she spend hours getting ready for that moment of the wedding? You know, in part at least, so that when she walks down the aisle, people look at her and they say, Wow, she is beautiful. You know, that is, that's a special time, you know. And, and that fits with this, story, with this chapter. That he's using this wedding language, and, and it's like God is saying, God has blessed you. It's like a bridegroom on his wedding day. It's like a bride on her wedding day. They go all out. Why? So that people will ooh and ah and talk about You know, that is something special right there. Of course, in the context of this chapter, his point is God's people need to dress up nicely. I don't mean that, and he didn't mean that. I'm not talking about clothes you wear. He's talking about the way you live. And that's how I want to segue and and bring this to, to our church here, our church family here. God is good to us. And what that ought to do this comes through in this chapter. It comes through in other places as well. But what that ought to do is it ought to make us commit ourselves to living in a way that we are living in the world so that people look at us 
Well, this is first part of the Sermon on the Mount kind of language. Salt of the earth, light of the world. You know, people, people look, at, look at you and they bring glory to the Father. That, that emphasis is, is really neat in this chapter. And I, and I love that image of the bridegroom and the bride and you know, the dressing up. And Ephesians, this is Ephesians 5 kind of stuff here where Paul says that we're the bride of Christ. Why does he use that metaphor? Why that illustration? Maybe it's because, and he uses, he talks about this a little bit in that chapter, but that he may present, that he may present the bride as holy and without blemish and without spot. He chooses this image of a bride, you know, the whole, you know, biblical story of the, you know, the, the bride, the young lady, the the, the young virgin, that kind of language is used in the Bible. She's pure and beautiful. And Jesus says, that's the church. That's the church. And the church has been saved by God so that the church might live in a way that the world looks at the church and says, God planted that church. Because people, don't, people aren't naturally like that. Something special going on with, that, with those people there. Something special. That's the theme of this chapter, it seems to me, where, where Jesus quotes from the first part of this. He's revealing himself as the one who does this. He's the one who is healing the brokenhearted and all of that. And God does that for you and me. But you know, to, to us, to, this, to a Sunday night crowd who've, who've received that healing, for the most part, right? We've, we've been saved. We've, we've received the good news. We've obeyed it. We've responded to it. So what? It's like somebody put it like this. God didn't just, Jesus doesn't just save us from sins. He saves us from sinning. I like that expression. That doesn't mean that once you are saved from your sins and that, that once for all moment of, of salvation where your past sins are forgiven, that then you remain sinless from then on. I mean, you know that. But neither does it mean that this once for all act doesn't have implications for the rest of your life. He saved us from sins, but he also saved us from sinning. There's a different perspective, a different mindset. So as Christians, we are blessed by him. We're healed. We are saved. We're set free and all the stuff that goes along with the beautiful gospel. Why? So that we live our lives in a way that people at work and people at school and people in the neighborhood know that oak tree didn't get there by itself. You know, that, that righteousness, that, that kind of attitude, that, that that ability to stand up in the face of adversity, that smiling when anybody else would be cursing, that kind of attitude right there, that comes because that tree has been planted by some, someone other than us. Now that, that seems to me the theme of this chapter that Jesus quotes in the sermon that he preached in Luke 4. So for us, you know, just as, as God's people here at this place, we go to we go to the real world, go back in the real world tomorrow, we go to work or school or shopping, the market, wherever it is you're going to be going tomorrow. Remember who you are. Remember who you are. Remember who planted you. Who set you free. Who healed your broken heart. Um, who, who caused you to, to be blessed in all the ways that are associated with the gospel. And then remember the nations are watching. The nations are watching us to see if there's any difference between those people who call themselves Christians and everybody else. And you know what it does when people see a, 
and inconsistency. You know, when they, when they, see, when they see people who are, who are Christians living just like everybody else, you know what kind of impact that makes on them. But when they see something real and different about us, they want to glorify God, and that's ultimately our goal. We live in the world. Now, if you're not one of God's people, if you're not a Christian, then um, we want you to become one, of course. We, we want you to confess Jesus Christ. If you believe in him, to confess that with your own mouth, you believe that he is the Son of God. And, and, and part of this coming to Christ is recognizing you're broken, you, you're messed up, and you can't fix that on your own, but... He comes and He declares you sin-free again. What a beautiful thing that is. As you come to faith in Him, you're baptized into Him, and all of your sins washed away by His blood. And you can do that tonight. And we are just eager to share the Lord who's healed our broken hearts, to share Him with, with all of you. And if you need to respond, I hope you will. If you need to come back to Him tonight, to ask for prayers or encouragement from your church family here at Hoover, they will want to help you in any way we can. Let's stand and sing this.